Howdy, podcast fans and lovers of great stories. Andrew Bray here with your favorite podcast host, Barbara Bray. Hello there, mom. Hello, son. <laughs> Andrew, I just love this time we get to meet and do this again. It's just fun. Well, I just love that this is uh, a passion that you've curated. Uh, I, what everybody doesn't necessarily know about you is that. You started this passion for storytelling and getting in, getting into the lives of amazing people, um, not not at the earliest point in your life. Um, and we don't need to get we, we we don't need to get into that into that too much. But one thing I just want to say is that it's it's inspiring to me to see you always pursuing passion, always pursuing care. Um, it mm. reminds me to not get lazy about it as as i settle in <laughs> you have a long way to go though you have, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no i learned from you know i wrote this book define your why and in chapter six is icky guy i learned about that long ago where it said uh, there's no such thing as retirement it's it's that if you have something to that gets you out of bed every morning then you have purpose. You have that why. And this is my why. It's the stories. Did you know I call myself a story weaver now? Okay, I'm down. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, weave us a story about this upcoming conversation. Well, Carolyn Foote is someone I've known for over 20 years, and I have been watching her grow. She's a, um, a librarian, a teacher librarian in Texas. Well, things happened recently, and a few years ago, she started exciting things and has been honored on CNN and some, and even by Obama with a champion as a champion. And now she's doing freedom fighters. And I just want you to know a lot about Carolyn and the direction she's going because it's it's something we need to do. She's she fights the book bans and some of the other things that are happening. I, she's so brave and so sweet and so kind. It's an honor to have her on my show. All right. Well, stick around, everybody, and join the weaving as we <laughs> listen to this conversation with Barbara Bray and Carolyn Foote. Hello, this is Barbara. I'm excited today because I have someone I've known for a long time, Carolyn Foote. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Carolyn. I'm so happy you're here. I mean, I've known you for a long time, and it's been fun to follow your journey. And when you said, yes, I'd like to be on your show, I went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm so happy. Well, thank you for having oh, me. You're welcome. This is so great. So I want to introduce you to my audience. All okay. right. I'm going to boast a little bit. Don't blush, okay? Uh, <laughs> Carolyn Foote is an educator librarian, a 2013 White House champion of change. I read all about that. I was so excited for you and followed you on that. That must have been really cool, right? It, it was amazing. And um, the president showed up for our ceremony, which normally he doesn't. And so we didn't know that ahead of time, and we got to meet President Obama, and it was pretty uh, just mind-blowing. So. Yeah, you have a picture of him with him, right? Yes. Maybe we could put that on the post. Yes, yes, I'd love to do that. 
It would be nice. That's so cool. Another thing I didn't know about you is that you provide library design. Um, yes, that's an area I really specialized in when I was a working librarian. I'm retired now. I call it rewired because I don't like to think of myself as retired and I'm doing a lot of work, so I'm not really retired. Um, but I I did a lot of work on library design and actually classroom design. And I library with an architect here a little bit as well on helping with a school library that they're working on. Ooh, I'd love to see the redesign, like yeah. what it looked like and what you did. So, oh, we'll have to talk about that. You're also a keynoter, and I've heard you several times, and you're amazing. Thank <laughs> That's you. It. But Thank you also you. do presentations, webinars, and so much more, right? Right, right. Um, webinars for organizations, you know, like library organizations, teacher organizations, but I do get asked to do webinars for like a school board or, you know, a community group or a business. So all sorts of webinars. I know. I've been following. I'm going, wow. I mean, I never thought you would be doing this and you probably never thought you'd be doing this too, right? No, no. <laughs> and you're a Liliad Fellow. We'll have to talk a little bit about that because I'm not sure what that is. And the big thing right now is your co-founder of Freedom Fighters. That's big, right? Yes, it's become a huge effort to fight censorship um, in Texas, but also across the country. And we had no idea this would go on this long or be this bad. So it's become a huge effort, yes. Oh, it's well, that's why we talked. We talked at South by Southwest EDU just this last time in Austin. And it was like, you know, I just, I'm in awe of you because it is a big thing that you're doing. I see your co- keynote and all this, you know, you're passionate about stopping book bans, but there's so much more. It's so much more. And your purpose and your story touches my heart. And you just told me you talked about my book at the last keynote. Was it last week or this week? I did. I did a keynote in Southern Westchester, New York, and um, for a big group of librarians across the state. And I was talking to them about how we could tell better stories about our programs and ourselves. And um, so your book was perfect for that. And (laughs) I, I shared it with everybody in the hopes that that would be useful for them. Oh, I appreciate that. And you even showed one of the videos that I linked to. So uh, we'll talk about that another time. But I'm so I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you for being here with me. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I always start out asking, which kind of it's now I mentioned a little bit about it, but what is your why? My why is kids. I'm passionate about kids as readers and learners and supporting their learning journeys. And um, so that really colors everything I do. And when I say that, I mean, I'm really passionate about especially teen learners, high school learners, and, you know, their right to have the information they need, their right to read, their right to be acknowledged as, you know, sentient beings who have thoughts and feelings that so in all ways, I mean, I'm, I was a teacher for 10 years, so I'm really at heart an educator first and a librarian second. And um, so that's really what motivates me. Wow. When I retired, it was kind of weird. You asking about my why. I wasn't planning to retire. I loved 
loved being a librarian. I loved my job. But again, like many people, it was sort of a COVID political related moment. And I just decided I was, you know, ready to move on. And, um, but I didn't know what I was going to do because I wasn't expected that we were going to have a global pandemic, obviously. And, and so one day I sat down and I made a list of like three words that I thought were things I could do once I was, you know, not working because I still wanted to contribute. And um, the first word I wrote down was advocacy. And then, of course, it was several months later when um, really all the book banning stuff started in earnest in Texas. And I ended up connecting with other librarians that I'm good friends with in the state. And we ended up launching Freedom Fighters. So I I wrote my way into that somehow. Like, I didn't know any of this was going to happen, but but it was interesting that that was one of my three words that I wrote down. Wow. Well, definitely. It's like circumstances kind of lead us down roads we never thought we were going to go. But it's like really obvious from my point of view that you had to go that way because I know you. I know you and you're so passionate about this now. And you've always been passionate about kids. When I first met you, that's, you know, I think I, I think it's over 20 years ago. <laughs> I know. I think it's hard to believe that, isn't it? But I think you're right. Oh my gosh. I was trying to remember we were talking about uh, rooming together in Atlanta for ISTE. That's a long time ago because they don't yeah, go there was, anymore. I think it was still neck then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, some of my, our, our my people in my audience might not even know what ISTE is. Neck, yeah. forget it. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe why don't we go back and about where you grew up and what it was like for you to be a student. So I grew up in Austin, Texas. I still live there. And at that time, Austin was a small college town. I mean, we had one seafood restaurant on a lake, you know, one. It's totally different than it is now, but it always had kind of the same vibe if you've ever been to Austin. Yeah, I love Play Austin. That college kind of vibe. I grew up in South Austin with you know, two sisters, a cat, and we were big library users. We live within walking distance of a public library, and we used to go once a week at least um, on our own as soon as we could, you know, walk there ourselves, and I would come home with stacks of books, like I think like seven or eight books at a time. I read a lot. I was a big reader. But even before that, uh, I have this memory of when I was a little girl, we had a bookcase in the hallway between our bedrooms, and I organized our books and put labels on the spine of each (laughs) book, because I really evidently like libraries. And, you know, I totally forgot about that, um, because I also taught our dolls. My aunt was a teacher, so I would give our dolls standardized tests. Oh, no. The closet, and I'd read the instructions from her old standardized test. (laughs) (laughs) How to bubble their name and all that. It was pre-bubbling, so whatever. And um, anyway, so I became a teacher. I I mean, I worked at a summer camp with kids in high school. I um, was on yearbook. I was in theater, drama. I really wanted to be a teacher. I almost didn't go into teaching because of pay and, you know, it's a hard job. And 
I waffled a little, but it was really what I was passionate about. And so I went for it and I never regretted that. I used the library so much as a teacher and got more and more interested in becoming a librarian because it's kind of the best of both worlds. You still get to teach kids. You get to be around kids constantly. But I had a son who was one and you don't have the paper grading and this sort of that kind of world that I was always terrible at keeping up with and the bureaucratic <laughs> part of it. And and so I became a librarian. And then I remembered that I had organized my books in like <laughs> library order as like a five-year-old. So obviously it was meant to be. I had just forgotten that. Oh my God. So when you labeled them, you didn't do the Dewey Decimal System, did no, you? No, <laughs> I must have just done letters of the alphabet or something. I don't oh even remember that, but I just remember putting little tape on each book and putting them in certain order. Oh, well, some people put them by color. <laughs> some put them by, the, you know, by the, you know, author. We always yeah. joke as librarians that we should just organize our librarians, libraries by color because kids come in and go, can you find me that book on animals I was using? It had a purple cover oh. and, big, <laughs> and you've got to like have the covers memorized so you can figure out which one they're even talking about. Uh, now you could digitize everything and put the color on it and then go yeah. click. <laughs> yeah. Here's all our purple books. Oh, so you became uh, just an educator librarian at Eanes. Yes, yes. So I taught for 10 years in Hayes, which is south of Austin, and then I moved to Eanes as a as a educator librarian. And um, I just had the great fortune of working with two other amazing librarians there. Um, there was there were two of us at the high school library, and we had an amazing district librarian who was really interested in research and how to teach research to kids. And I learned so much from her on really being mindful about um, using research models so that we aren't just sticking kids and saying, oh, do a research paper, pick a topic, but that we're really having deep thought and frameworks around that. And she used Carol Clothaw's work, which her daughter, Leslie, has continued. Um, but, you know, there's other frameworks too, but but that really got me interested in that from the get-go. And I and I was already a huge reader, so I already had that piece of it. But coming from being an English teacher, that really engaged me. And I learned so much working with them. And, um, and because I was the third staff member, I got to do a lot of the fun programming for teens and into the library. And so that really got me interested in that too, as well. And over the years, the staffing was cut and then cut again and cut again. So by the end, you know, it was a good thing I had all those skills because I was doing a lot of different, wearing a lot of different hats. Yeah. They, in some places like in California, they, they actually got rid of, I mean, I don't want to say got rid of, they removed the, they called them teacher librarians, and then they asked them to go back into the class and because they had clerks. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Right. Okay. Uh. Clerks can be so helpful, but mm -hmm. but they don't have the training. They haven't been teachers. And um, just all the complex things about, like I said, teaching research. I was very involved with our iPad program at, in Westlake and and get teachers on board with that. I did PD for teachers on, you know, how to use Twitter and how to teach research papers and how to analyze information and 
all of those things that librarians do that to help improve education for our kids. So, so those aren't things clerks are really prepared to do. Yeah, it's a it's a shame for them because things were thrown on their plate and they were it was just way beyond yeah. their capabilities. And what I see is that I mean, I just loved working with the librarians. I worked with librarians in several districts and some large districts, and I was like, I just wanted to hold them close. Say, don't leave. <laughs> their their skill the skills are are so needed now, and that's why I love. I just love librarians. Well, and you know, we're one of the few people on a campus that actually know the curriculum across the spectrum, other than maybe the principal and the counselor. You know, and we really see it from an instructional vantage point because we work with all the teachers. So it's really a different and important role that we play that people don't think about it that way. Well, we just got to get them to think about it because we need librarians back. We need them more now than ever because of all the information that's out there. People don't know if it's real. They don't know how to even do the research that you're talking about. I just, uh, so we're going to, we'll push that. We'll find a way. Great. I'm trying to figure out what happened to you by 2013 that you got this champion of change. It's, I know you, I know you deserve it. I just want to know the story behind it. Well, I was pretty shocked. I think, you know, I was pretty active on social media. I was blogging. I was sharing what was going on in our library. Um, I was sharing our efforts to experiment with the iPads when they were brand new. And um, some you know, I I tried to be very scientific about it. We just had a small group of iPads. And so I would have teachers take it home for the weekend and then fill out a survey afterwards. I brought in our special education students and handed out the iPads to them and tried to document what apps and how they were using it, which actually was so amazing. Think about when the iPads were new. Yeah. There was this moment I had a student who who couldn't read a book himself because he couldn't turn pages. He didn't have the manual dexterity. Ooh, and wow, so that's interesting. I brought this the a few kids in and we were with the teachers working with them and handed him the iPad and set up an ebook for him and he was able to turn the pages for the first time and you should have seen his face. Uh-huh. And we forget that now cuz we're so used to touch screen technology. But it was like a a chilling moment to see that. And so, you know, and I shared some of that work I was doing on social media and, you know, people from Department of Ed and stuff, I guess, saw and followed it and they wanted a librarian um, represented in the group that they chose because it was, they were honoring connected learning. And so they reached out to me and I was shocked because there were so many other colleagues of mine who were so renowned doing great work in this area. And I, I was, um, you know, surprised, I guess I sell myself short a lot, a lot of times. I just think I'm doing the normal stuff that I would do. And then people are like, Oh, that was amazing. And I'm like, really? I was just doing what, like, I was just doing what I do. (laughs) And I just, Uh... No, when it's yourself, you don't really see it, I guess. But it was it was just such an honor and amazing to be recognized. And at the 
at the moment they were featuring the their broadband program and getting people on board with broadband so the the whole group of um connected educators which included bud hunt who i knew who oh, I, I know bud yes and we were in the yeah. same group of six, seven or eight of us and i found out it, he was there too so it was really fun because we got to share that experience together oh i haven't seen him for a long time I yeah there oh wow well, well we're gonna have to reach out yes i know so gosh that must have been so wonderful i i just you know here's the thing you're so humble <laughs> And I know when you give your keynotes, you're so genuine that people really connect with you. I think you did say you sell yourself short. I, it's okay because that comes across as someone who's really authentic and real and it's in your heart and you're doing something you really believe in, like freedom fighters. That is so big now. Can you just tell me how that got started? Shortly after I retired, remember, well, this was 2021. So it was after George Floyd, people had been trying to, especially educators and librarians have been trying to improve the quality of the materials they had available for kids and make sure they weren't missing things and um, were representing all our students. And, um, and we started seeing a couple of book challenges here and there about books about race and racism. And so a few colleagues of mine around Texas, we present together sometimes and we're all sort of advocates. We were involved in TCA, which is the Texas affiliate of it. And um, we were all officers at different points there, TLA. And we were like, we ought to submit some things to conferences about how librarians can be prepared for this because maybe there's a little more of it coming. But at that point, it wasn't that much. So we did, we connected, we submitted some things. And then like roll a few months later into the fall, a state representative sent a litter just out of the blue to superintendents around the state with a list attached of 850 book titles, asking the districts to see if they had them and any other books that might ca might cause shame or guilt around race or sex, which, I mean, you know, that could be awful lot of books. And we were like astonished when we looked at the list, A, it had a lot of books that were mystifying, like why they were on any list, like books about the Supreme Court and rights for kids and quinceaneras and stuff like that. But then we also immediately noticed there were a lot of books about race and racism and a lot of books about LGBTQ with LGBTQ characters or themes. And so we were pretty alarmed right off the bat and started talking to each other about, you know, did you see this and what, what do we need to say? And, um, and then like, a week or two later, our governor spoke up and said, you know, there's pornography in our schools and we need to do something about it and da, 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 da. And he referenced this letter. And we were like, this is appalling. Librarians are being misrepresented. You know, we need these diverse books for kids. 
And so we brainstormed amongst ourselves what to do. And my colleague, Becky, the next day came up with the idea of um, doing a hashtag takeover, the Texas legislative hashtag, which is commonly used in Texas during sessions. And so we love the idea and um, we came up with our own hashtag freedom, capital F, capital R, E-A-D-O-M. Because we noticed there was no common hashtag being used to discuss censorship, and we felt like we needed one so people could use it. And then we secretly notified people through our back channels of library channels. We notified authors, friends, that on November 4th, they should tweet out why a diverse book mattered to them. And we created a document that had instructions on what to do and how to make your post. And to use the hashtag freedom and Texas Ledge. And to our shock and amazement, I was actually in California at a conference. And so I had to get up because Texas time, you know, is two hours different. So I had to get up at five in the morning and start tweeting this <laughs> out because the other people were working and I they couldn't do it during the work day. And so um, and I wanted to retweet things as they went out. And we had 13,000 tweets go out that day. And we wow. did sixth on Twitter almost all day nationally. With um with the Freedom yes. Fighters? Yes, what? with hashtag oh, freedom. Wow. Oh, freedom, yeah. Yes. And people were celebrating all sorts of diverse book titles and how that made a difference to them. And it just was like so heartwarming and unbelievable that we had that much response and exciting. And we're like, well, we gotta do something here, like. We didn't even have our own Twitter account, you know, and or a name. So we formed the name Freedom Fighters. We created a website. We event, gradually wrote resources for people because they didn't know what to say about what librarians do or how we buy materials. We created a how-to page on how to talk to your school board, how to write a letter to the editor, what kids could do. And we eventually got a T-shirt created by a friend who has an Etsy store, and they donated part of the proceeds last year to the uh, Intellectual Freedom Funds in Texas. And um, anyway, and now we have 16,000 followers on Twitter. We've done interviews with like, I've done interviews with reporters from all over, you know, we've done CNN we done in SNBC. I've interviewed with Swiss TV, German TV, and Nepal, a reporter from Nepal. So, we're, <laughs> our, we're, so I cool. know it's amazing. So, you know, we're getting the word out as best we can about, because it's amazing. A lot of people still don't know what's happening or they don't know the extent of it. And so we just try to take every interview we can so that we can, we can, help librarians, um, you know, keep books and schools for kids. This is amazing. I mean, I'm looking what kids, because um, I know, you know, high school kids that are right. reaching out and they even started their own band book yeah. resource libraries. <laughs> and, oh. and it's just so sad because kids are smarter than we give them credit. Oh. That if we just teach them the tools to understand what's real, what's not, and It bothers me so much that this is happening again. It used to happen before, right? Right. Right. I mean, we've seen it happen in history. And first off, referencing kids, I 
we lessened the law school board meetings at dinner. <laughs> it's our dinner <laughs> entertainment around the state just to keep up with what's going on. And over and over, you'll hear, hear kids speaking at school board meetings and saying, we're being the adults in the room right now. Like we're asking you to use academic rigor and understand what these texts are and, um, you know, and they they are. And I feel sorry that they can't just focus on their extracurriculars and their homework and are there getting there and fight. But yeah, in terms of history, um, you know, we've seen these moments before, like in the Red Scare. I know in your book, you mentioned, you know, how you're... My own father, he was accused of from uh, being a communist, which he wasn't, but it, all you need to do is accuse someone. And then all of a sudden you, your whole life has changed. Right. And now you're accusing people who are just wonderful authors and wonderful stories for things that aren't real, what they're saying. I, I just am so sad. Right. And librarians and teachers are being called groomers and pedophiles. Even it's, um, Oh my God. No, it's, it's, heart-wrenching, it's upsetting, it's damaging their reputations. While I will be the first person to admit there are books with a wide range of maturity levels in libraries, especially high school libraries, because high school students are college-bound, you know, a certain percentage of them are college-bound, and we have AP programs and IB programs, and they're reading college-level text, so of course there's going to be mature content in there. But nothing that's in a school library meets the definition of the obscenity code because they're not they're not meant to arouse anyone. They're not meant to um, and they don't lack literary merit. You know, it's not it's not a magazine that's hidden behind the counter at the convenience store. You know, <laughs> so while, Just think of that. while people think, may feel uncomfortable yeah. about yeah, the mature yeah. content in them. And I get that because every family has a different viewpoint on that. Removing it from all kids whose parents might not have an objection to it isn't fair either. So, you know, that's really an individual parent decision that needs to be made, not a blanket decision affecting the whole school and every child because, you know, that's we the whole point of libraries is that we provide materials on all sides of issues. We provide materials for different maturity levels, different reading levels, different interests. And so we have a broad array of, of stuff in the library. So what's really sad is we have kids that can't read. Yeah. Still. And so what I I'm just sad what's happening to schools because the idea of interest, when a kid's interested in something and something that's relevant to them right. might be about one of the books that, that they're talking about. And if you're, if they have a problem reading and you don't give them something they're interested in and it's relevant to them, you're already boring them anyway in school. I'm sorry. That's what's going on right now. Kids are, are losing interest. and and they're also probably really angry because now they're hiding their own identity because they don't even see themselves anymore. Right. It's, it's I'm right. just. And we're sending I, a message by some of the censorship that their stories don't belong. So when you yeah. take the hate you give off the shelf of a school library and it has, you know, um, 
police violence in it. It's unfortunate, but it is true that some kids experience that. And so yeah. you're saying this experience you went through, you know, we don't consider it valid and, you know, you can't read about it. And even though that book deals with it in a very complex way, the main characters, I believe it's her uncle as a police officer. So she yeah. sees it from different sides. And that's a great thing about that book because you get different facets to it. So, and certainly with the LGBTQ materials, you're saying, you know, you don't belong here. And that is so troubling to me um, that we're telling any student that their stories don't belong here. I mean, this is 2023. It's not 1950. And and there's a and there's a mental health issue out there. Oh, if we're sure. if we have kids that are struggling even at home because um, of their choices they're making and of who they really think they are, but they can't talk about it, and then you tell them that they don't belong there, right? It, I mean, we're we're putting people at risk, and so oh. that's what's scaring me, especially oh. young children. And that really motivates us. You know, when I said I was motivated by kids, that's exactly what I'm thinking about are those vulnerable kids who maybe can't even speak up for themselves. And so having access to reading material is so important. I talked to an author the other day when I was keynoting in New York who was at the conference, and he said he wrote the book. He grew up in a small town, and so there certainly weren't resources for him then and certainly not in the library because those books just didn't exist at the time. And he said, you know, he wrote the book for kids like him who are stranded in small towns and maybe don't have the resources to understand themselves as they're coming, going through an experience of questioning, you know, or figuring out like we all do in, in school, figuring out our identities and I don't mean identities as gender identity. I just mean who we are. <laughs> like, who we are. Who we are as human beings yeah. and having books that explore that. And I, you know, it's it's hard because the First Amendment's complex and America has trouble, you know, it's hard to talk about things that are complex and books are also complex. But I try to remind people, if a kid reads about something in a book like drug abuse, there's usually sympathetic characters that are their friends that are trying to help them. You see their inner thoughts as they're grappling with trying to quit or their parents are trying to help them quit or, you know, as they're trying not to fall off the wagon. It, they're not out there completely on their own. Or if they have a romantic encounter, they're worrying about it. Should I have done this? Like they're talking to their friends about it. They maybe talk to their parent. So books are contained. They have containers wrapped around these complex moments in our lives. And most teen books, they're resolved. You know, by the end, they've learned their lesson or they've they've come through that experience and they've survived and they're thriving. And, and that's the way most teen books are written. And that's totally different than sending a teen on the internet to look up drug use or, you know, sex. I mean, imagine what they find and there's no container there and there's no character that's an adult by their side or anything like that or a best friend with them. You know, they're out there on their own. So I just think people forget that that's actually if there's any place you want kids to learn about things 
and and to learn that they will survive tough moments. Books are the place to do that. And kids, I've seen kids where they'll they're sitting in a corner and they're just enveloped in that. You know, they're just like in, enmeshed in that book and they don't want to let go. Yeah. And so I'm just, I'm just. It's not fair. <laughs> and that's why I'm I'm so glad you wanted to talk about this because there, it's almost like we need kids to read the stories to the adults. <laughs> yeah. I I'm, I'm just wonder if they could do that. Maybe go I, to the I've book. really been thinking because, you know, in some of these meetings, school board meetings, passages from books have been read. But the, the people, you know, the school board members, the legislators haven't read a lot of teen books in a long time, most of them. No. So... Yeah. It would be great if people got up and read the passages where the character dies and their mom's helping them from the same exact book or, yes. you know, a yes. passage where their friend helps them through a hard time in the exact same book. So they could see that books have facets and it's not just this one page out of the book. It's like the whole facet of the book. What if there, okay, I'm doing this. This is just a little bit off track, but I just love it. Brainstorming with you. This is something where I see could be videos that go out with you or other librarians walking, you know, going through, why do you love this book so much? Right. Read and read a part of it and put it up on, to share the reasons why these books are good. Right. This is a banned book, but you know what? This is the part of it that they're missing. You would love reading this book, mom. You know, something like that. (laughs) And I've been um, thinking about, you know, we ought to be having people go to board meetings or legislative hearings with an iPad with their logged into their e-books. So when someone prior to them speaks and reads something that they can pull up the same book and read a different passage so they can be prepared because we never know what book's going to come up in any meeting. And I mean, there's certain ones that come up a lot, but still every time there's a new one. So last this past year, just to give you an example, over, um, I don't have the exact number in my head right now. Let me pop over and look that up. But over 2,000 um, books, individual book titles were challenged in, in schools. So uh, 2,571 different book titles were challenged last year. That's incredible. I mean, just in just last year? Yes, in one year. The usual number of book challenges is about 300. So, you can see how completely out of like the normal kind of environment we are right now and um and that's why it reminds me of the red scare when people are accusing things and oversimplifying and sort of anti-intellectualism and um, all of that. And it's going to take, you know, it's rough going to those meetings sometimes, but it's going to take the majority of Americans, depending on the poll you look at, it's between like 70 and 85% of Americans are against book banning. And it's going to take all of us not being silent and writing our superintendent of our local school district or writing a school board member um, and just letting them know, even if there's nothing going on in our district, that we support intellectual freedom. And if there is something going on, certainly we have to, we need, we all need to get involved because sometimes librarians can't speak up for fear of losing their job. 
sometimes English teachers can't speak up for the same reason, history teachers. So they need the parents and community members to, to, to speak up. I think we can put all of this on that post we're putting together and um, also some links to the how to, because I, I didn't do some things because in my state we're, we're not doing that, but I would like to help the, the people I know in Texas and some of the other States, because I think that it's just opening the door for the reasons and having kids. I really think if we can get kids to just get out there too, because that's what made a difference with a lot of other things. Yeah. I think kids' voices are really important here in helping support kids' groups. You know, there's things people can do. Even if you can't speak up for some reason, um, you know, you can donate to groups fighting censorship. We don't take donations because we're not even a nonprofit, but Groups like Pan America or ALA or um, National Council Against Censorship, all the groups like that. Um, and, or, you know, if you see kids trying to put together a group, you can buy books for them to read, you know, for their band books club or um, those, those things are helpful. Letters to legislators are helpful. And, you know, people think it's not happening in their state, but there was a bomb threat in New York last week to a school for a book that they had on their library shelf. Oh, no. Um, no. We've seen uh, censorship happening in a dis- a couple of districts in California. You know, every state mm-hmm. has its pockets of where it's happening. So we're no yeah. immune, um, unfortunately. Wow, that is so... Well, I know we're going to leave on a good note because yes, one right. of the things is that it, we do have to know what's going on. We have to be on top of it. I know that my parents were, this is, I was a little girl. I mean, very, very little. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. But it impacted my father to the point where he had to change his job and do everything. It changes your life. Right. And what's happening to librarians is changing all of our lives. And what's happening to the books and the authors that are amazing it's it's causing struggle and it's for the wrong reasons. So this has just been amazing talk. I just, this is what I wanted. <laughs> you can always come to my porch <laughs> and we can talk more. Yeah, This is wonderful. How can people reach you? What is the best way? The best way, there's two ways you can reach me. Um, I'm at Techno Library on Twitter and on email. So I'm technolibrary at gmail. Or you can reach me at Freedom Fighters. So it's freedom at Freedom Fighters, F-R-E-A-D-O-M Fighters on Twitter. But also that's our email, freedomfighters at gmail.com. Well, you made that easy for everyone. And I'm just, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to what we sh- what we shared but um, it was just, a lot. It was I great. I just want to say that to reassure people, these moments end, but they end because Americans believe book banning is un-American and Americans speak up. And so I know this moment will end and we'll look back on it in history with shock and surprise, but I know it will come to an end. So I want to reassure people that are in those situations that, that it will end. And I also want to say just 
Thank you, Barbara, so much for highlighting the story and these issues and also for our long friendship and times getting to see each other. Well, thank you, Carolyn. I I treasure our friendship. And when you came up to me when I was signing my book, I just, oh, <laughs> I just, I it was just was so, so nice. Well, just having, knowing what you're going through right now and taking the time to even come over, it just made me very feel, very warm. And I know when people know you and get to know you, they'll know the same feelings that I have. When you're passionate about something like this, it's, um, I don't want to say the word contagious. <laughs> it just, it, it helps touch our heart, all of us, because there's so many people believe what we believe about books. And so we just need to get the word out. And you did a wonderful way of doing it today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Barbara. And, you know, I want to thank you for your book because I just think it is so important understanding our why. And in my rewired, retired state, you know, finding that was super important to me. And um, and I know a lot of other people, there's just been a lot of turmoil in our profession and education. And so having sources like that to help people figure out what next, you know, what am I all about? I just think it's so valuable. So thank you for all you do. Well, you changed the name of a new book I want to do. I'm fine. I wanted to do a book around retired that they don't. I, I like rewired, rewired, <laughs> not retired. That's, I love that now. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with Carolyn Foote. You know, I've known Carolyn for a long time, but I learned a lot more about freedom fighters during our talk and why now is the time to fight discrimination in all of these book bans. So please make sure you check out the blog post that goes with this podcast, and that's on barbarabray.net, so you can access resources and all those links that Carolyn mentioned. It would be awesome if you subscribe to my podcast. I'd be really grateful if you wrote a review. You're also welcome to subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive updates, resources, stories, and more podcasts. So thanks again for listening. Keep sharing your story. And please stay safe and be well.